Beloved, it seems at times in uh, this day and age and many others as well that the world is unraveling before us, almost like a cheap sweater. It seems to be imploding. What this world needs, what we need, what the Christian needs is a certain word for an uncertain world at an uncertain time. You see, other religions lie. They lie. The other religions tell you that if you do these things and don't do those things, you'll make the world a better place. Biblical Christianity tells the truth. It says this world is messed up. Lies may encourage for a while. They may give some mitigation, some assuaging of concerns or situations, but that relief, that encouragement doesn't last. Truth, however, does last. Only truth edifies. Only truth will survive the furnace of time. Only truth will survive the refining spotlight of eternity. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. Paul is writing to a church. In his first letter, we understood that this is a young church. It was several months old when he wrote the first letter. This letter here is some few months later. So this is a new church about a year old. And we know from the first letter it was a uniquely model church. It was an example church even though they were very young. But what he's doing here is he's writing to this group of Thessalonian believers who are being literally torn in two. Some of them are having their heads cut off. They're being, some among their number are being eaten alive by animals in the arena. So what does the Apostle Paul give to them in this time? The Apostle Paul doesn't put the sawdust of human opinion into their hands. He puts the iron doctrine of the Word of God into their hands. He gives them the sure Word of God because Paul knows only true knowledge will inspire true hope. Falsehoods may give false hope. They give the kind of wishful thinking hope. But it's only the truth of the word of God that gives the biblical hope that is the sure word of God that will one day be realized according to God's good word. Beloved, our passage this morning are the last two verses of chapter 1 and the first two verses of chapter 2. And this is a little unique, more so than I think I preached a sermon before where they aren't disjoint. There's nothing in the Word of God. You could go any place in the Word of God to another, and it would be wrong to say that it's disjoint or any, in any way mutually exclusive. But the last two verses of chapter 1 definitely go with entire chapter 1 in the encouragement. And then the first two verses of chapter 2 set the stage that for what comes next. And what's a good thing to remember as well is that in the original writing, when they originally wrote this, there were no chapter divisions, there were no verses. So it's one continuous flow. Beloved, listen as I read first, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, the passage we have for us here this morning. This is what Paul writes. To this end also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure, 
or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Thus ends this reading of God's holy inspired word in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we have here is the last two verses of chapter 1 is Paul's encouraging report. The first two verses of chapter 2 is Paul's edifying request. There is an encouraging prayer report followed by an edifying pastor request. And what he's doing here is he's shifting from encouragement from hell that we had in our sermon last week. In verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, there Paul gives a defense of God's justice. He tells these believers, persecuted, afflicted Thessalonian believers, that God's justice will come. God's justice will be done. Maybe not in their lifetime or in our lifetime, but it will happen. And he even talks about the judgment that will fall on those who don't know God, those who are disobedient to the word of God. And he does this in a way of encouragement. So verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, I titled the sermon titled last week, Encouragement from Hell. What we have here as we especially go into chapter 2 is edification from heaven. And beloved, understand this. Our vision for tomorrow shapes our lives today. Your vision for tomorrow shapes your life today. So let's look at these last two closing verses of chapter 1, Paul's encouraging prayer report. Uh, What he did in the first five verses of chapter 1 is Paul gave thanksgiving for God's grace. In verses 6 through 10, Paul gives a defense for God's justice. Now in these last two verses, he gives a prayer. Or he doesn't, it's not really a prayer. This is actually a prayer report, not so much a prayer. But it is around prayer for God's power. And really what he's doing here, when we pick up verse 11, he's picking up where he left off at the end of verse Verses 6 through 10, as I just indicated, is his defense of God's justice. But verses 3 through 5, this is what he said back then. He said, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is evidence, plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And that is where he picks up when you now look at verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always. Uh, That little phrase at the beginning, to this end, to be sure does encompass what he said in verses 6 through 10. But it is really picking up this theme of thanksgiving and encouragement to this church. And it's interesting, in the eight chapters of these two letters, Paul touches the subject of prayer 13 times. He opened up the very first letter with prayer. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. And then even as I just read, again here he opens up this letter in verse 3 with prayer. So what we have in verses 11 and 12, as I just indicated a bit ago, it's not a prayer, but it is Paul's prayer report. Namely, what Paul does here is he answers two questions. He answers the question in verse 11, what precisely does he pray for? 
And then in verse 12, he answers the question, why does he pray? What is his petition? What is his purpose? And it's very edifying, very encouraging, very instructive for the church in Thessalonica and for you and me as well. So let's look at this first question answered. What precisely does Paul pray for? Now, before we look at the text and answer what he does precisely pray for, what we will see and what we should notice is what he does not pray for. He does not pray, at least here, does not record in his prayer report that he prays for the persecution to end. He doesn't pray for their afflictions to cease. Now, there's no doubt on my mind that Pastor Paul, in his heart, in his prayer time for this church, understanding the trials and tribulations, the persecutions and afflictions that they go through, there's no doubt in my mind that he did pray for these. But here, when he's writing this letter to the church, he doesn't think those important enough to be included. His point here is he's focusing on what matters most. And so what Paul does here, he prays for these relatively new believers that they would endure and that they would mature as they are already doing. Now, Paul knows what will stand the test of time. He knows the elements, the issues of what will stand the fire of eternity. Now, imagine for a moment if we had a tape measure that could measure the content of Paul's prayers in his epistles and that we measured his emphasis in his prayers on the health and the temporal well-being of the churches that he's writing to. That measuring tape, that imaginary measuring tape, I think would go inches off the ground. Now, at the same time, if we were to apply this imaginary measuring tape to the content of Paul's prayers for the churches to their holiness, that measuring tape would measure from the ground all the way into the clouds. Again, what is most important? Another element, another amazing observation we saw back in verses 3 through 5 here in chapter 1 that God had already answered Paul's prayers for the Thessalonians in his first letter. In the first letter, Paul prayed that their love would excessively abound and increase and spill over. And in verses 3 through 5, as I just read here, Paul thanks God because God precisely answered that prayer in the way that Paul was praying along the will of God. So that is amazing. Also, we know that in verses 6 through 10, Paul had really laid out, even as he was talking about God's good justice, the absolute security and stability and certainty of the future glory of his children, of you and of me. Now, I say that because when we think of what Paul is doing now is, we can ask the question and really wrestle with the idea is, the future of God's children is secure and certain, so why does Paul pray for it? And it is because Paul doesn't presume upon it. He doesn't presume upon it. He keeps on praying for these things that matter most. He prays for things that will survive the furnace of time, that will survive the refining spotlight of eternity. Namely, as we finish out verse 11, he prays for their worthiness, their wants, and their work. He prays for their dignity, desires, and deeds. First, he prays for their dignity, for their worthiness. Look at the continuation of verse 11. He says, and he's reporting to the church how he prays. He prays that our God may count you worthy of your calling. We read back in verse 5 that 
that their standing with God, their exercise of God's grace in their life is evidence of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So Paul has already touched on this dimension of them being counted worthy. And we understand he's not saying that they would be made worthy, not that they would be made deserving, but rather they would be counted as worthy. Or even more to the point, I think of the heart of Paul in his prayers, that they would be shaped as worthy. They would be fitted for the worthiness that they already enjoy, that's been imputed to them by the righteousness of Christ, by the worth of Christ. That they would live lives in line with, commensurate with, in harmony with the worthiness of Christ, who is their Lord and who is their master. So he prays for their dignity. He second as we see, he prays for their desires and fulfill every desire for goodness. Uh, the Greek word translated as a desire here, it's also translated as good pleasure. It's translated or sometimes understood rightly as resolve. And what's interesting is this word here, this word for desire is used almost exclusively in the New Testament of God. This is one of the rare occasions where it's used of people. For example, Philippians 2.13, God wrote to the Philippians, it's God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, for God's desire. So that's the word desires. The goodness here, the word goodness is never used. The Greek word for goodness is never used in the New Testament of God. It is used of men and women. It's human goodness. It's the kind of goodness that's the part or one of the elements, one of the nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. So what Paul is saying here, he's praying that their will, that their will, their desire, their resolve would line up with the goodness that is right and appropriate, that their resolution, that their resolve would turn itself into something that is truly worked out in their life. And this all made me think of perhaps the greatest theologian ever to set foot on American soil, Jonathan Edwards. He had his very famous 70 resolutions, uh, which he resolved himself towards in his writing. And as I would understand it, he resolved himself almost on a daily basis. And resolution number one from John Edwards is this, quote, resolved, I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure for as long as I live. That is the joy and the blessing of living, moving, breathing, and walking in Christ when our desires line up with the revealed will of God. Beloved, dear friend, Jonathan Edwards was not a jellyfish that floated along in the current of his culture then. Neither would we, would, should we be, as men and women of God, jellyfish that float along in the current of our contemporary culture. We need to live according to right desire, according to right resolve. So Paul prays for their dignity. He prays for their desires. Finally, he prays for their deeds. Because you see, godly desires are incomplete without godly deeds. And so Paul prays for the goodness of their will to act out in the goodness of their work. Look at the end of verse 11. And the work of faith with power. These are works produced by faith. These are deeds empowered by godly good pleasure desires. 
And in fact, the verse I read before from Philippians, Philippians 2.13, it's God who's at work in you both to will and to work, both to desire and to do deeds for his good pleasure. And so the faith, the empowering faith that we see here, saving faith is not inert. Saving faith has power. And we may wrestle with this whole dimension of human prayer in the context of a sovereign God, but especially even as we see here from Paul in terms of his describing God having already answered his prayers for the Thessalonians and the absolute certainty we have of what awaits us at Christ's future coming, why would we pray for something that is already fixed and promised in God's unalterable purpose? It is because it is the good pleasure of the sovereign God which becomes our good pleasure and our good work. That is part of the dynamic of what Paul is describing here. William Hendrickson, the commentator, had these choice words. He said, and I love this because he takes from eternity past to eternity future, the unbreakable link of the chain of salvation. This is what Hendrickson said, quote, in the chain of salvation which connects one eternity with another, constant prayer and daily sanctification are indispensable links. So again, if you can picture a chain that stretches from eternity past to eternity future, that's a long chain. And links of sanctification, daily sanctification and prayer are part of this unbreakable chain of salvation that is part of this sovereign plan of God. And so, beloved, as a result, in the Thessalonian church, and may it be in Santan Bible Church, we have faith-produced work, love-produced labor, and hope-produced steadfastness, taken from Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. Some of you may keep a prayer journal, and that's a beautiful thing. For a moment, let all of us imagine that we keep a prayer journal. And now ask the question to yourself. If you were to put your prayer journal under that spotlight, under that refining spotlight of eternity, how much of it would survive? Now, that's not to say that those temporal things, as Paul surely did, as I said before, prayed for some measure of relief from their suffering, from some measure of taking away of the persecution. Those things are good and right, but how much of our prayer journal is filled with those things which will burn away rather than the things that will stand the test of not just this time, but uh, the test of time eternal. Beloved, our vision for tomorrow shapes our prayers for today. It shapes our lives for today, and in the context here, it shapes our prayers today. So it is time to turn our resolve into reality. That is what it means when we move from the desires to the deeds. So that answers the question of what Paul prays for. The second question that is answered here is why does Paul pray? And this is in verse 12. He moves to an even greater goal. And he takes this great, what we have in our English Bibles as the first chapter, he takes this great first chapter and he finishes it with a doxological exclamation point. Doxological. He centers it on the glory of God, on the glory of Lord Jesus. We saw even only two verses earlier back in verse 10 that there is a promise that Lord Jesus will be glorified in his people. Lord Jesus, when he comes, will be glorified in you and in me. Then on that day. 
It says, verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day. Here in verse 12, he is glorified in his people now on this day. We know in Scripture there are many great doctrines, especially around eschatology, around end times, that we have an already not yet dimension of our salvation. What Paul does here is he's already covered the not yet. He's already talked about the blessed hope of the future coming of Christ. Now he goes to the already part, the right here, right now. Not then, but now Jesus Christ is glorified in you and in me, in the here and the now. And it is the name above all names, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. It made me think of what God said through the prophet Malachi. Malachi 1 verse 11, regarding this name, from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is describing this great glorification of Lord Jesus at his future coming. The whole earth, the universal reign of God. These are believers across the face of the earth. The sanctification of the entire earth. That is what will take place then on that day. And there is an element of it beginning even now. Or what Paul said earlier in Philippians 2. I read and cited twice Philippians 2.13. But in Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11, we have these great words of encouragement that Paul gave to the Philippians. Verse 9, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God and the Father. So, beloved, dear friend, there will be a time where every knee will bow. The knees of the believers will bow with great joy and happiness and thankfulness to the coming of our Lord and our Savior. And also the knee of the unbeliever, the knees of the unbeliever will be bowed by coercion because they will have to admit that he is indeed Lord of Lord and King of Kings. So it is again interesting. Paul brings out not just the already asked, or excuse me, not just the not yet portion of the blessed hope we have, but he applies it to the here and now. And finally, Paul adds a truly staggering statement at the end of verse 12, or in the middle of verse 12. And you and him. What he is saying is when he comes he will be glorified in his saints what he prayed for or what he is telling them he prays for here is that he would be glorified in his children now and that you and I would be glorified in him right here right now and this is difficult for us our normal right response when we think of our own glorification we Don't do anything for our own glory. We do all things for the glory of the Lord. But what he says here is there is an element of we will be glorified in him. And this is not something the Apostle Paul sucked out of his thumb. This is something even our Lord Jesus Christ said in his high priestly prayer. John 17 verse 22. Christ, when he was praying to the Father, said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them so that they may be one just as we are one. 
Beloved, we will be eternally incandescent with his glory on that day. And you and I are to shine with his glory now on this day. That's God's charge to us. That's part of what Paul prays for. That's part of how we should pray for one another. So we know we are to gird up our loins. We know we are to pick up our swords. We, are, we know we are to shine with his glory. But how are we to do this thing? Do we do this? We understand a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. Do we do this in our own strength? And of course, the answer is no. We know that. And this little phrase at the end of chapter 1 is so very important. At the end of verse 12. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it reads, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. There's some Greek grammar here. It's called the Granville Sharp Rule. I actually went through that in great detail when I preached through Ephesians 4. I'm not going to do it here. But Paul is pointing to the fact that Jesus is God and our Lord. According to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul prays. What Paul is praying here, he's praying, or he's telling the Thessalonians that when he prays for them, he prays that they would live up to their calling that grace has already brought them. This is the first cause. The first cause is God, and it's God's grace worked out in you and worked out in me. And by way of application, I want to read a quote from the great 18th century pastor, preacher, and evangelist George Whitfield. This is what Whitfield said. Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me, if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. I care not who is uppermost. I know my place, even to be the servant of all. I am content to wait until the judgment day for the clearing up of my reputation. May the name of Whitfield perish. May the name of Miller perish perish. May the name of masters perish. May the name of Eli perish. And the list goes on and on. May the name of Christ shine in our lives. Beloved, you and I must live in the light of the end if we are to live today as we ought. We hope and we remember. We pray and we obey for his glory. And even for our good and even as educated here in some measured way for our glory. So that is Paul's encouraging prayer request. As we turn the page to chapter 2, we move to Paul's edifying pastor request. Again, we had encouragement from hell in verses 6 through 10. Here's where we embark into the edification from heaven. And the reason is this. Just in case we think that everything is perfectly rosy in this model example church based on the effusive praise of Paul, it wasn't. You see, there is a lurking, festering theological error and confusion that has crept in. There are unsettling tremors that have caused cracks and fissures in the foundation of this young church. And so what we have here. In the first two verses is the beginning of Paul moving from this kind of gentle encouragement that he gave, especially in the first letter, and then in pretty much the entirety of the first chapter, to what will become, what will become a very strong rebuke. 
in only a few months' time frame. Uh, the writing of this second letter is only a few months after his writing of the first letter. And let me make a comment about that. We should not be surprised that a church that was a model church, an example church, that only got even a tiny bit, minimal amount of kind of, not even rebuke, but kind of a gentle prodding towards a better way in the first letter, in just a few months would get this tremendously strong rebuke. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It takes a long time to build, normally. It can be destroyed in a moment. What we should be, we should be surprised by a young, several months old church in the first letter that had such praise, or even in the first chapter here, but we should not be surprised by this rapid decline that appears here. And what we see when we <clears throat> come into chapter two is it's very obvious the problems have escalated. The heat has turned up. We go from bad to worse. We go from dangerous to more dangerous. We go from persecutors to false teachers. We go from affliction on the outside to confusion on the inside. Persecutors on the outside, liars and leeches on the inside. Paul opens it up. Look at verse 1, chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren. Now Paul appeals gently as one brother to another, but still with authority. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with regard to the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, literally of Jesus coming alongside of us. And notice here, Paul uses the full formal title, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's pointing towards his future coming. Now, if you're here this morning, this may be something new to you, this idea that Christ did promise that he would come again. Maybe you're a brand new Christian and you're just understanding different doctrines as they would come to you. Maybe you're not a Christian. We know from Scripture Jesus was crucified. He was buried and he rose again. He ascended to heaven. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. He's reigning right now from heaven. He's even interceding for us here and now as we have our corporate praise and worship service. And Lord Jesus promised that he would come again. And not just that he would come again, but that he would reign and rule as King of kings and Lord of lords over the entire universe. So, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Look at the rest, and our gathering together to him. Our epithunagoge, our literally our intensified synagogue. This describes what awaits us together. We will have an intensified synagogue. And in fact, right now, I just call this a uh, worship service. We could also call this our intensified synagogue. The one other appearance of this word is in Hebrews 10.25 where the author of Hebrews exhorts his audience to not forsake our own assembling together. Don't forsake this intensified synagogue that we enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul's point here at the beginning of chapter 2 is that his coming and our gathering together to him, our rapture and reunion are inseparably connected parts of one great whole. This is God's unity of heaven and earth that will be realized in the future. This is the edification from heaven. And this is the very same 
dynamic that Lord Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount on what I think was Wednesday night of the Passion Week when the disciples asked him about the end of the days and the sign of his coming. Part of Jesus' response to them is captured by Mark 13, verse 27, was Jesus said that he will send forth the angels. God will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Or what Paul, when Paul gave him a gentle nudge away from what was a minimal amount of error in the first letter, in 1 Thessalonians 4, you can turn back a page or two. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17, this is what Paul wrote then. He said, This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the encouragement Paul gave them in his first letter, which he cites here in the second letter, is that the risen and resurrected Christ will be accompanied by his raised and resurrected people. And he will gather them from here, there, and everywhere for his glory. And, again, wonder, wonders for our glory. And so, what we have here, we move now to verse 2, the second verse in chapter 2. And this is where Paul makes a transition to his main point, really, of the entire letter. Namely, stay stable, remain calm, hold steady, keep working. He will get to later. And what he does here is he begins to encourage them. God begins to encourage us. God begins to instruct us, in their case, by correcting their deceptions about the future. And in verse 2, you read, so that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure. That you may not be quickly shaken literally from your mind. Don't lose your head. Don't lose your mind is what God is saying through Paul to the Thessalonians. Or be disturbed. Uh, the word shaken, this is a word that describes an agitation, an upsetting, a violent sudden onslaught of tossing by wind or waves like for a boat that is shaken from its moorings, perhaps even describing a boat that wasn't moored tightly and was now cast adrift. And it's something that the Thessalonians would understand at some level from their history. When Paul and Silas and Timothy had been driven out of Thessalonica and God blessed their ministry in Berea, we read in Acts 17 verse 13 that when the Jews of Thessalonica found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also. They came there likewise agitating and stirring up the crowds, shaking and stirring up the crowds. Now this word, this shaking, this violent onslaught was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Judges 5.5, the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. Or Micah 1 verse 4, the mountains will melt under him. And so this shaken, this violent upheaval comes from the outside. But this shaken and disturbed, this disturbed is being suddenly troubled, alarmed. This is on the inside. It's the Greek word thraeomai, from which we get our English word throws. Our English word throws, which describes well the original Greek word, an intense or violent pain and struggle, especially accompanying birth or death. 
For example, someone might say of someone that he convulsed in his death throes. And the only other appearance of this word, throeomai, was also in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew records, Matthew 24, 6, Jesus said to his disciples, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. See that you are not disturbed. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. And even the grammar, the first, the shaken, that describes a violent shock that throws them off balance. But the second, this disturbed, is a continuing state of agitation and unrest. So there's the initial upset, and then there's the continual anxiety. And what seemed to be a hint of confusion about the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5 has erupted into a major issue. Uh, the Verse 2 continues, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul gave a general correction in the first letter about the day of the Lord. Here it's erupted into something way more significant. And we could ask the question, what caused this great upset that produced this continual agitation and instability? It's either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Uh, supernatural revelation, oral preaching or teaching, or a written letter. And the situation was that some of the Thessalonians thought that Jesus had already returned. They thought that their present persecutions and afflictions were part of the day of the Lord. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, going from the more minor problem and error they had that Paul corrected in the first letter to this greater error that he corrects here in the second letter, this is what Stott said. Basically, in 1 Thessalonians, quote, the Thessalonians were troubled the Perusia hadn't come quickly enough because some of their brothers had died. Now their problem is that it had come too quickly. And you see, this helps us understand their angst and consternation about the persecution. If Jesus has already returned, if this, what we have here, if this is all the bullets we have in our Christian gun, it's no wonder that you are shaken. It's no wonder that you are disturbed. And that is because someone had taught them this. False teachers had crept in. They'd come on the scene and they'd prophesied, preached, and or read a false and forged letter that Jesus had already returned. That's why Paul says, as if from us. So apparently there was some false lying person that said, hey, I have a letter from the apostle Paul that says the day of the Lord has already come. He has already returned. And I think this is why, look at chapter three, verse 17, the second to last verse in the entire letter, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. I think that's why Paul makes a statement there and why he makes a common practice to describe that he is writing in his own hand so that people will understand the truth, that what they have truly is the word of God that has come to them. And for us, it's a reminder to us. This is why it's so very important. To whom do you listen what do you read? What do you scroll? I'll grab the application I did some few Sundays ago. Beloved, when you wake up in the middle of the night, when you lay down to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, don't pick up the infernal smartphone and start scrolling. Pray, pray, don't scroll. To whom do you listen? What are you reading? What are we doing with our time? 
and beloved dear friend when we come to the bible we have the iron doctrines of the word of god we don't have the sawdust of human opinion we have absolute verities and we're not interested in pet theories especially around end times and when we think of even error and heresies around eschatology around the end time there are her- there are errors and there are heresies at both ends of the spectrum there's the heresy of hyperdispensationalism there's a heresy of hyperpreterism and if you don't understand all these words I'd be happy to explain them I may explain them as we go on into more of the uh, end times teaching we have here or you can come up afterwards but there are heresies at both ends the heresy of the hyperpreterists they say that Jesus has already returned he returned in AD 70 kind of the same way that the Jehovah Witnesses because the false prophet Charles Taze Russell first prophesied that Jesus would return in 1914 when he didn't he moved it to 1918 then 1921 1925 and it goes on I think the last one was 1977 and at some point the Jehovah Witness had to come up with a new doctrine that said well Jesus actually did return in 1914 it was just invisible Beloved, Paul's dealing with the same kind of heresy as the Jehovah Witness and the hyper-preterist. Jesus has not returned yet. And we can ask the question at this point, what could be worse than persecution? What could be worse than execution? Paul's answer is false teaching, theological error. You see, beloved, you see, dear friend, spiritual danger is always of a greater danger than physical danger. It's safe to conclude from this letter. It's safe to conclude from the entire corpus of the entire Bible, certainly the New Testament, that we should be more concerned about false teaching than persecution. And the reason is this. Persecution afflictions, whether it comes from enemies of the gospel or it comes from living in this present misery in this fallen world with the decaying flesh, that can only touch the outer man. False teaching can harm the inner man, does harm the inner man. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus gave this warning. He said, Luke 12, 4, I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Beloved, that is why Jesus made that statement, because the error that harms the inner man or the inner woman is far more dangerous than anything that can happen to these external bodies. And I will say this, this even ties in with this whole dimension of moving from the gentle encouragement to the stronger rebuke in such a short time period. It normally takes a long time to build. That's why we are surprised that this young church had such great effusive praise from Paul. It normally takes a long time to build. It takes years to build, but you can destroy in a moment. And the sins that can destroy a church are heresy, immorality, disunity. May God protect us. Beloved, what Paul does here as we go on is Paul gives a balanced perspective on end times. Don't be passive and ignorant, nor fanatical and extreme. Rather, be aware, be alert, be confident. And beloved brother, beloved sister, understand this. In the context of your 
affliction, in the context of your suffering, you've never met a trial. If you're in Christ, you've never met a trial that you won't outlast. They don't exist. And there's more that we can hope for. There's more that we can hope for most gloriously, wonderfully, when we think of the blessed hope of his return and the focus here, especially in verses 11 and 12, even in this present misery, there's more that we can hope for in this present misery. And Paul, who wrote this, as I had mentioned before, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are the earliest letters he wrote with the possible exception of his letter to the churches in Galatia, Galatians. We know for sure the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote is 2 Timothy. And you can listen or you can turn over a few pages to 2 Timothy chapter 4. As Paul is in prison awaiting execution, he writes these closing words of exhortation and encouragement to his young protege Timothy coming from his heart, which captures so much of what we've covered here even this morning. Verses 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Verse 5. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For, this is Paul's heart, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Beloved, that is Paul's heart. That needs to be our heart. And understand this, as you are going through your suffering, older people will understand this better from experience. Young people, the whole idea of, of suffering in some of these things, it may be like the adult and the old Peanuts cartoons, blah, 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 you know, they just can't comprehend that. But suffering is part of this. Understand this, God is not indifferent to your suffering. He knows what's going on. And in fact, he knows the truth about it far better than you or I do. And also, don't be deceived. Justice will be done. Justice will always finally be done. For us in Christ, there is a world coming in which we will have perfect justice, where sin no longer remains and where sin no longer even menaces. That is part of what we long for and wait for. Justice will be done, and justice has been done by Christ at the cross for the man or the woman that trusts him. D.A. Carson has this great quote. He said this, <clears throat> The truth is every Christian who has thought long and hard about the cross begins to understand that God is not merely a stern dispenser of justice, nor merely a lover who lavishly forgives, but the sovereign who is simultaneously perfect in holiness and perfect in love. His holiness does demand retribution. His love sends his own son to absorb that retribution on behalf of others. The cross simultaneously stands as the irrefutable evidence that God demands retribution and cries out that it is the measure of God's love, end quote. Beloved, 
All is well around the throne. In our suffering, let's start there and back the camera back. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we thank you for your good word. Thank you for these words of encouragement. Thank you for these words of edification and even beginning correction for this Thessalonian church. Lord, help us to apply it always here at Santan Bible Church. Be glorified, Lord. Refine us, shape us, sharpen us for your glory. Help us to excel yet more in all these things. And Lord God, even now, in a bit, we will hear testimony from uh, uh, men and women that are trusting in you in the pools of baptism, Lord. We praise you and thank you for new life, for forgiveness of sin, for salvation, which begins the journey on the way to your presence in heaven where we'll be with you forever and ever, seeing you as you truly are. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.